So uh, I got a degree at Northwest Missouri um, in general wildlife ecology and environmental science. Um, and, you know, as part of that, you're going to take an ornithology class, but um, I had the uh, misfortune or fortune, depending on how you look at it, uh, I, I got this interesting internship that uh, required me to have a knowledge of coastal birds. I worked on uh, Galveston Island in Texas, uh, leading kayak tours, and you had to know coastal birds. Well, the problem was I didn't know any birds, and so I, I uh, had the opportunity to take a two-week accelerated ornithology course, which is 5 a.m. to 5 p.m., 12 hours a day, nothing but birds for two weeks straight. And it was, it, it just clicked. It fit, it, it was amazing, it was fast-paced, it was exciting. Um, many people probably think of, you know, bird watching or birds in general as, you know, something that your grandparents do maybe, and uh, you might, you know, take a snooze after you do it. But that class showed me a different side to it, and I just fell in love with birds from there, and then I took some more ornithology courses. Um, and then have just done a multitude of trainings since um, to the point where now I am, uh, and the term is, is going to make some people chuckle, but I am a master bander um, for a variety of types of birds, um, everything from hummingbirds to some raptors, songbirds. So um, I can band most birds in the state of Wyoming and in a few other states. Some um, you have to do it state by state. Um, and so we have a variety of banding projects, not just owls, um, but everything, like I said, from hummingbirds, uh, which are which require a lot of caffeine to band, to songbirds, which is our, our big stations where we probably get the most visitors. Okay, so first, we've got to back it up for me and the listeners. What exactly is banding? Give us some details on what that really is. The bird banding, it's, it's a tool, right? So in a scientist tool chest, there are a couple of ways to monitor birds. You can just go out and count them. Um, you know, get some binoculars, get a piece of paper, go out, count the species, how many of each species. That's one way to do it, and it's a very powerful way to do it. But a way to measure and monitor on a more personal level, a demographic level, is to actually put some sort of way to track individual by individual. And so in this case, we use bands, which are little aluminum tags um, that wrap around the bird's foot um, without causing injury or uh, preventing them from using their feet like they should. And so it, it, it weighs less than a tenth of their body weight, probably less than a percent of their body weight for most birds. Um, and so we put this little aluminum band on their leg. It has a unique identifying number, like a name tag. And so essentially, we can track that bird for the rest of its life. Now, some birds only get leg bands. Some birds will get color bands, where in the field, you can see the color pattern and then you can identify it. So, you know, if you want to use, you know, uh, a human name, you can say, oh, that's Bob, that's Bob the Warbler, right? Because you've got a color band with a specific color code for that bird. And then we go all the way up to some birds get radio tags where when they ping towers or they use uh, GSM uh, devices which ping cell phone towers. So everything from radio towers to cell phone towers to satellite tags now. So it's basically a way to monitor and measure and track individuals so that we can measure what we call uh, vital rates. So are birds reproducing? Are those young? Are they surviving and then reproducing on their own? Um, these birds, when they migrate, what are the routes they're using? Are they surviving their wintering grounds? Or is this where uh, we're seeing population decline due to habitat loss on wintering grounds? Is it occurring on their summering grounds? And so it allows us to track individual by individual and get a much more clear picture 
of the entire annual cycle of individual birds within populations. How many birds are you banding, let's say, every year? Every year, um, Audubon Rockies bans um, between 1,000 and 1,500 birds. I need to start paying attention for birds in the wild or even just around town that might have one because I've never noticed, but I haven't thought to look for it. So listeners, if you've ever seen a bird with a band, maybe that explains a little bit what's going on. They're easiest to see on large birds. So the uh, bald eagles frequently are banded. Osprey frequently are banded. We've had several osprey that have passed through that have been um, banded north of us. And as they migrate north or south, photographers oftentimes will catch a, a photo of one. Um, and then if, if you're looking for hours, the best place to see them is going to be out at Edna's Kimball Wilkins. So the birds we band at that park generally are nesting within the park and they're not going to stray too far from their nesting grounds. And then there are some hummingbirds on Casper Mountain. So if you have a hummingbird feeder on Casper Mountain, or if you go visit the feeders that are put out uh, by the hummingbird bander up there, um, you can visit those feeders and actually see the little hummingbirds come in and sometimes you can catch a glimpse. It's harder on hummingbirds because it's a very small band. Yeah, so, okay, two questions. First, what is the process of banding a hummingbird? So, to, to band hummingbirds, we, we bait them, and we bait them using hummingbird feeders. They're very used to them at this point. They know what they are. They know they're a reliable source of food. And so, the hummingbirds uh, come into the feeders, and these feeders are, are put out um, by... Uh, someone who's, who volunteers their time basically to run this station. It's not part of their job, whereas for me, it's part of my job. Um, they give up one of their weekend days uh, every two weeks to go out and ban these hummingbirds. So um, she goes out and she puts up the feeders, she refills them every week, and then the hummingbirds get used to coming into the feeders. And then you put up, uh, it's a special kind of trap that it, you would almost look at it and say, did Elmer Fudd put that together? Because it's, it's essentially the stick in the box trap where the hummingbird comes in, you let go of a string and it falls down and it's a mesh net and they can't fly out of it. And then you reach your hand up and in and you grab the hummingbirds in mid-flight, um, which sounds hard and it is hard, but once you get used to it, it, it becomes a little bit easier. And then you put them into a little mesh bag, carry them back to the table, and then to ban them, you actually leave them inside of these mesh bags. Um, you get their leg to poke out just a little bit. And then you have to put on a, a handmade, we, and we make them with jeweler's tools, very fine detail tools, um, special handmade aluminum band that's from very thin sheet aluminum, and we wrap it around their leg. For each individual, they get a special size band. And how does that process vary for bigger birds? Like, how would you get a bald eagle? Oh, so a bald eagle, well, you're not going to catch as many, right? With a bald eagle, either you're going to ban them as chicks in the nest, which is one of the safer ways to do it, unless the adults are coming in and uh, giving you the business for, for messing with their nest. Um, but with adults, uh, yeah, you're only going to be able to trap one or two at a time. It's a lot harder to trap raptors. Um, you oftentimes have to use... Uh, well, with something like an eagle, you might use a carcass, try to lure them in. Um, with other raptors, uh, you have to use live bait um, and, and put them in a cage and then basically trick the raptor into trying to get the food and then the cage has the trap around it. I'm just thinking about that person who sticks their hand in there. It's probably not the same as the hummingbird <laughs> <in terms laughs> of grabbing it. It's a little less safe. You have to, you have to know what you're doing. So, uh, you know, to handle any of these birds, it requires extensive training um, and then you have to be permitted 
uh, federally and on a state level. So we have a multitude of permits from USGS, US Fish and Wildlife Service, Wyoming Game and Fish, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, every place we operate, um, we have to have special permits uh, to do this because yes, it can be dangerous for the, for the humans, but even more so for the birds, it can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Okay, and then a little off topic, but I wanted to get back to my second question about hummingbirds. I was always told that hummingbirds uh, flap their wings a hundred times per second. I don't know if that's true or not. And then I'm wondering if there are any misconceptions about birds that just drive you crazy. Ooh. Oh, I, okay, so here's, oh, let me go misconception first. Uh, I just want this out there. Bats are not birds. Just so <laughs> everyone knows that bats are not birds. They have fur, they have mammary glands. So uh, young bats, they're pups, they feed on milk. Birds do not produce milk, birds do not have fur. Birds are one of a kind in that birds are the only living creatures to have feathers. Okay, so that's, that's one, I, I gotta get it out of the way. And then uh, here's one that, you know, maybe you've heard it from someone, especially kids seem to know this fact a lot more than, than some adults do. Birds are the last true living dinosaurs, um, even more so than crocodilians or turtles or, or anything like that, birds are, are related to dinosaurs and in in the most scientific of senses are dinosaurs so there's there's a misconception and there's a support for uh any kids listening that uh they they love to spout the fact that birds are dinosaurs not reptiles or not all reptiles are as close especially chickens they look so weird to me i love chickens but they're kind of scary looking i mean yeah they're just a t-rex covered in feathers and you know a lot smaller but there might be weight to the argument that T-Rexes were covered in feathers. Yes, and, and it may not have been to the extent that uh, we see modern birds covered in feathers, but yeah, there, there's a lot of evidence that shows, yeah, uh, a lot of the big traditional type dinosaurs that we think of had feathers on their body, sometimes ornamental, um, and there may have been other uses as well. It's harder to study when you're studying from rock than when you're studying living organisms, but you can also make connections from well, this is a living version of that, and so we can maybe make some correlation there. Okay, another maybe a misconception that I want to address, the idea that bird watchers or birders are the old grandma or grandpa sitting outside. I think that stereotype might have been true at one point, but do you think that more young people are getting interested in um, identifying birds? You know, as younger and younger generations, I think, start to connect more with the environment or environmental concerns and causes, I think there's there's definitely a growing wing of young birders, young bird watchers out there who are, you know, taking what was, you know, maybe more traditionally considered a hobby and, and turning it into, we're using uh, this hobby to drive some of the data that helps scientists and conservationists make the decisions that help protect birds and other wildlife. So there is definitely a youth movement happening in birding um, and they're finding new ways to do it and they're finding ways to, to you know, make it more exciting um, where it's not just um, you know, checking off a bird on a, a sheet of paper. There's a lot of technology around it now and they're doing really exciting things around this fear and then they're using all of that information to help power uh, decisions. Now, when you go banding, you're bringing groups sometimes, and um, is this an event that has like a title? So we, each of our, we, what we have are a variety of stations. So we have 
our Enniskimba Wilkins station. We have our Bart Ray station, which is where owl banding occurs, but we also do some songbird banding. Um, and then uh, there's the hummingbird banding station at Hogadon. And so um, depending upon what we have as far as volunteers and our ability to handle groups, we do invite groups. So we've had several school groups come out this summer to our Edna's Kimball station, mostly because we have infrastructure there to handle groups, restrooms, you know, water, things like that. Whereas um, if you come up to the owl banding station, which we usually, uh, if, if folks are interested, they, they have to send me a request and I'll send them a form to register for some dates. Because the owl banding, um, it's unique in that it's, it occurs at night, which obviously adds, adds a, a different layer because we're going from dark until sometimes past midnight. Um, and that, you know, that's a reverse schedule for a lot of people. So having, having a, a schedule where folks can register is important. But then also the owls are very picky about when they migrate. So we're talking about an owl that's the size of a snow cone. Um, in fact, that's how we hold them. We use a grip that I, I call the snow cone grip, and it looks like you're about to, to take a, a big old lick off your snow cone because they're such a small forest owl, and so they don't like to fly in bad weather, in rough winds, um, if it's too bright out, so full moon nights. They don't like to fly them because bigger owls that prey upon them can see them, so they avoid those nights. So it's a very finicky uh banding opportunity with owl banding but it's also one of the most fascinating and owls are so charismatic everyone loves right. the owl banding um with our other banding stations though there is a higher guarantee that something's going to be caught um owl banding because they're so finicky we've gone several nights where we've had groups and uh we caught no owls so we do invite groups um but it's it's it varies station by station how many and when they can join what is this particular owl called this is a northern saw wet owl um, and it doesn't hoot like your typical great horned owl you know it's not a hoo hoo instead it's a it's a uh, almost a it sounds like a, like a, a whetstone you know when you're when you're scratching something on that it goes toot, 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 and we blast that sound at about a hundred decibels luckily there are no neighbors nearby and we blast it for hours, just nonstop, and we surround that that collar, we surround it with nets, and the owls are, are intrigued by the sound, and so they come in and they are looking for this sound, and they're trying to figure out what owl's making this sound, and as they're coming in to check out the collar, they fly into the net and get tangled, and, and that's then how we catch them. Um, and so yeah, it's an adorable little forest owl. They're difficult to find if you don't catch them like this, oftentimes because they will roost and nest in cavities, and so they're hidden inside of trees, so you, you rarely get to see them. Yeah, I've never seen one. Um, are there a lot of them? So that is the question. Um, we don't know because they're so secretive and because the majority of this owl's population, they breed in the boreal forests of Canada. And so we have a massive population across that band of boreal forests of Canada. And then in wintertime, some of them migrate south, some of them stay on their summer grounds and defend the territory all winter. It, it will depend upon a variety of factors if, if they migrate or not. And so well, that's part of what we're trying to figure out is just how extensive and expansive this population is. And what we have learned in the years of this uh, Sawit study is it used to be thought that this was a very, very rare owl, but in fact, it's just very, very secretive. And now some stations will catch 
thousands of these owls in a single season. Our station does not catch that many. We are not in the biggest pathway of their migration, and so we don't catch quite as many as, say, if you were to visit one on the Great Lakes. On the Great Lakes, they'll catch hundreds in a night. We'll catch a couple in a night. I think most of us can identify certain birds like um, robins. I'm pretty good with magpies, um, a raven or a crow. Are there certain birds that are just all around us all the time that you think maybe don't get as much attention? They're just not as well known. You know, uh, I think I think sparrows oftentimes are. That's just a little brown bird. Or that's just a little brown job. Like it, they oftentimes are referred to as. LBBs, little brown bird, because a lot of sparrows can look similar. Um, some birds that uh, actually do a huge service to humans called flycatchers that eat a lot of the flying insects are probably overlooked because they all look very similar. Um, they're somewhat drab, and yet they spend their you know their entire summer here just doing nothing but eating flying insects, um, which is great if you hate you know bugs flying in your face or, or you know biting insects, things like that. This is the type of bird that would eat those. So um, yeah, there are a variety of species that are, are oftentimes overlooked either for the large charismatic birds like uh, eagles and owls or for the colorful birds like orioles, which if you've ever walked along the river trail and looked up in the cottonwoods and saw those hanging baskets, it looks like somebody weaved a fine basket of grass. That's a bullock's oriole nest and they, they build these hanging baskets that they tie onto little branches and then they nest down inside. It's like a pendulum basket, and they nest down inside of that. So those birds often get uh, more attention because they're just so brightly colored. Mm, gotcha. I see all the little ones too. I go, that's a finch. I don't. There's you know so many different types, and then how do you pinpoint exactly what kind it is? There are a lot of books out there. Speaking of which, I want to talk about your book just a little bit. Have you authored one book? Yes. Okay. So uh, I wrote. Um, Birding in Yellowstone National Park. Um, it's it's a it's an e-guide to uh, finding your way through the national park and knowing what birds you might find in each each location and how then to go about birding said location. So um, it's really it's just a, it's just a, a little guide to help those who are interested in finding birds in Yellowstone. Um, and I have tips for finding some other wildlife in places where appropriate. But it's mostly just focused on finding birds in Yellowstone National Park. It's really, uh, it's, it's geared especially towards those who maybe aren't from Wyoming. And so when they visit Yellowstone, they're looking to see the birds that uh, are, you know, found throughout the Intermountain West. But if you live on the East Coast, something like a Stellar's Jay or um, a three-toed woodpecker or a Williamson sapsucker or a black-billed magpie, they don't have any of those on the East Coast. So when you visit Yellowstone, you're hoping to see all of these Rocky Mountain specialties and so this is what that guy does is it allows them then to have a better chance to see some of these species that uh, are much more difficult to find um, if, if you don't have a little help maybe. Now in terms of conservation what do you think is at the top of the list for Wyoming? Oh what, like what needs the most help? Yeah. <laughs> Everything. Um, <laughs> that's I think that's one of the the biggest struggles with conservation is that we are you know we're trying to figure out what needs the most help and then trying to direct money and effort into those without excluding something else that might also need help so for instance you know I think 
sage grouse have have been you know far and wide everyone knows about the plight of the sage grouse um, it's you know it's a, a cyclical uh, movement within their population where we'll have high years and, and low years but then also just general trend line shows decline for the greater sage grouse and where Wyoming is the stronghold for greater sage grouse in the world we hold the majority of the greater sage grouse for the entire world right um, it's it's why it's why Wyoming became such a hotbed for it because we're it like we're we hold the most of them so if they're going to be protected this is ground zero um, other species though and I think this is one maybe that people might be more familiar with especially if they have a feeder in their background the evening grosbeak which is a medium-sized forest finch um, that lives on Casper Mountain nests on Casper Mountain we have seen declines over 94 percent in evening grosbeak um, in the past 50 years so you're talking about if you used to have a flock of 10 evening grosbeaks that came to your feeder, especially in wintertime in Casper, now you might have zero, and you probably do, because we've lost that many. They have just disappeared. And so um, across their range, you know, there's some consideration, is this a species that is falling into the needs to be listed as threatened? Another species for Wyoming, and it's a habitat that I think if, if you're not an outdoor recreationist or uh, you know a hunter or something like that it's it's underappreciated pinion habitat or juniper habitat we have very little pinion habitat in Wyoming but we have lots of juniper habitat and a species that is dependent upon juniper habitat in Wyoming is the pinion jay and the pinion jay also over 93 94 percent loss in the past 50 years and it's accelerated in loss um, and so it's a species that is right now, I think, being considered for the endangered species list because its populations have crashed, just just plummeting. And and there's just because it's it's such a rough terrain, it's oftentimes a difficult species to study. Um, and so it's not as well known, you know, what is leading to all of it, all the population loss. And so it's one that's being considered for additional research, additional monitoring and then possibly additional protections. And in my quick Google search before this, I was looking at threats to uh, birds, and of course, habitat is a big one. Um, one that kind of surprised me was cats, both domestic and feral. Um, is that, do you think, a big problem in Casper, especially because we do have such a large feline population? Um, yes, and you know, it's it's a hot button topic right now. Um, it's it's an issue that's come up in front of uh, city council several times. Um, and yeah, anywhere you have feral cat colonies, you have a vacuum of native wildlife. Um, and it's because they are very efficient at killing anything. Um, obviously that's, you know, within size uh, range of, of what would be their prey items. And so we're talking everything from songbirds to, to small mammals and not just rodents. You know, everyone wants to talk about, well, they, yeah, they keep rodents down. And they do, but they also kill non-rodent small mammals that you know are important food sources for other things that we enjoy. Um, and so it, it's a hot button topic, but the science is very clear. And and there are uh, groups out there who would say it's not clear, and they'll they would try to you know cast doubt on it. Um, and they're oftentimes you know specialized interest groups with specialized money that you know created their own research to to try to dispute research that came out of, you know, uh, non-biased groups that, yeah, feral cats and outdoor cats are some of the, the biggest killers of native wildlife. And so, you know, if you have 
birds nesting in your backyard or you want birds visiting your backyard, or you have a bird feeder, having an outdoor cat um, can be, uh, <laughs> it, can, it can do the opposite of what you're trying to do by attracting those birds in. So it's something we need to consider about, you know, keeping cats inside, not dumping our, our pets outside in, you know, any kind of pet. We, we wouldn't let dog colonies form, but we're letting cat colonies form. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an issue that does not have a, a good answer. Um, and it's part of the reason why there is no answer yet. You know, other countries are trying very extreme methods with outdoor and feral cats. Um, and uh, I don't think the United States is to that point yet. Now, this might be a silly question, but are turkeys an issue when it comes to other birds? Are they competing for food? And I, I mean, owls eat other owls, you said. Are turkeys a threat to other birds in terms of eating them? Maybe not eating them. Um, and so... The <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, but look, I, would, a, would an adult turkey eat, a, you know, the chick of another bird that was on the ground? Possibly. Um, uh, I think people would be surprised at the number of what we call opportunistic omnivores. Squirrels will eat eggs of birds. Squirrels will eat baby birds. Deer will eat baby birds. Huh. If a baby bird's lying on the ground and the deer's grazing, it'll just keep grazing right over the baby bird. Horses, opportunistic omnivores. So anything that has the chance to take an easy meal that has vitamins and uh, nutrients that that organism needs, opportunistic omnivore. But back to the turkey. So. The turkey is an interesting topic. Um, they're not native to Wyoming. So the turkey was introduced in the 30s uh, by Wyoming Game and Fish. Um, I believe we traded some sage grouse to New Mexico for some turkeys. And so generally where you find turkeys in Wyoming are places where uh, there is human support because one of their major winter food sources, which is acorns, we don't have a lot of. We don't have a lot of trees uh, that produce nuts in general in Wyoming. And so native food sources for turkeys are scarce, which is why generally where they seem to have their biggest populations are near population centers. And that's then where the conflicts occur. You know, we have, we've had the discussions about the conflicts with turkeys within the city of Casper. Um, and so are they causing problems for other birds? Are turkeys causing problems for other birds? It is something that's not well studied. Um, but what you will see is turkeys are occupying, using space that species like dusky grouse have historically used. And so could there be competition created from them uh, for resources? Absolutely. And the turkey is larger. Um, they are rampant breeders. And so, you know, when they have a clutch, it will be massive, you know, lots and lots of chicks. Um, and so, yes, I think, I think there is clear potential for disruption of some native species by wild turkey. Um, it, it's going to come down to, you know, it's going to be a very localized issue because again, the turkeys struggle to survive anywhere where they're too far from uh, humans where food is more plentiful. Mm, gotcha. In what way can people promote um, natural or just native birds in Casper in their own backyards? So, one of, one of the, the easiest ways to start, you know, changing your home to help not just native songbirds or other native birds, but all wildlife, everything from, you know, pollinators um, to non-pollinating insects to, um, you know, you get into the larger species, ungulates like deer and pronghorn, is to switch from um, 
you, you could look at it, I, you, I don't even want to say a desert of, of diversity because deserts are very diverse in species, but a void of diversity, and that is the lawn. The, the green grass lawn, which has a, a history traced back to people trying to imitate noble lawns because noble lawns, they didn't have to grow food on their lawns, you know, so mm. th in their yards. So instead they grew these big spaces where they could recreate. That's, you trace the, the lawn that we all have all the way back to then when, uh, you know, uh, lower classes were trying to imitate the nobles and so they started having small lawns. Um, and so this, this lawn idea, it, it holds no habitat for wildlife. Um, you know, very few native wildlife can utilize just a turf grass lawn. And so what you can do is take that turf grass and convert it to a less labor intensive lawn that is made up of native grasses and flowers so that animals can come in and eat it, um, insects can come in and pollinate it, and then birds can come in and eat the insects. And then it also requires less maintenance. Once you get a native grass lawn established, it takes care of itself because they're plants that belong here. It requires less water, no mowing or little mowing. And once they're established, very little weeding because these are the plants that know how to grow in this environment and can, can compete against you know, weeds or things that are often considered undesirable plants. I've heard a lot about butterfly gardens, also known as wildlife or wildflower gardens. And this is good for obviously the butterflies, but then I wonder in turn if that's beneficial to the whole ecosystem. Yeah. So butterfly gardens, uh, you'll hear a variety of terms for it. Like at, um, at Audubon, we call it uh, plants for birds. And so, you know, a butterfly garden, not only does it feed the adults, but oftentimes the eggs will get laid on the plants. Um, so like milkweed, one of the reasons milkweed is so important to the monarch butterfly, an endangered species of butterfly, is that the eggs are laid on the plant. It's not the adults feeding on it, it's that they come in and they lay their eggs on it and then the caterpillars eat the plant as they grow. And so they need a healthy system of milkweed for the caterpillars to grow. So when you plant something like a butterfly garden, yes, you're attracting the butterflies to feed on it, you're attracting um, bees, um, flies, ants, beetles, all sorts of other things that pollinate flowers. Because it's not just the pretty pollinators we want. We want all the pollinators because then those are food for other things. So when a moth or a butterfly comes in and lays its eggs in your butterfly garden, the temptation might be, well, I want to kill all these caterpillars and get them out of here. But the point of planting these native plants that then grow caterpillars is that something like a family of chickadees. So uh, a single family of chickadees in the course of uh, a year can eat in the neighborhood of 12,000 caterpillars, which means if you kill all your caterpillars, suddenly that chickadee family has less food to rely upon to make sure all their chicks uh, hatch healthily, fledge healthily, and grow into adults healthily. So um, these gardens are, are you, yes, you're feeding the pollinators with then the hopes that the pollinators are having healthier populations to feed the bird populations which allows them to have healthier populations. I've said populations way too many times in that sentence. You're fine. I'm grappling all the time for words because my knowledge of ecology, biology, it's very lagging. But at any rate, I want to end on um, letting people know how they can get involved and find you for bird banding and trivia night. 
So yes, if you are interested in our, our owl banding or maybe you want to learn to bird band, um, we train, this year we trained 12 volunteers on bird banding techniques so they could help out at either our banding station or another banding station if they came from out of town. You want to visit rockies.audubon.org and visit our community science page um, where you can sign up. And when you sign up, you'll, you'll get uh, a form email. Um, but when you sign up, the email goes directly to me and then I'll be reaching out to let you know, here are the next steps to, to get involved. Um, so if you're interested in any of the bird banding, including the owl, including the owl banding, then rockies.audubon.org. And yes, this Thursday we have our Audubon After Dark, which um, is far less risque than it sounds. It is a family friendly event. Uh, this Thursday is our story hour. And then next month uh, we will be doing trivia night and it's bird trivia for mostly birds of the region and so folks are welcome to attend those and you'll want to find out more and register for those by visiting the same website rockies.audubon.org and going to our events page um, and it it's all very clearly labeled we have a great communications team that has this site put together in a an easy way to navigate so visit that go to the events page and you can register for those events there